Welcome back to the most popular rite of summer, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony, and today I'm happy to welcome guest host, Concertmaster June Iwasaki. Thanks, Mike. Um, really enjoyed being a guest back in the fall. Uh, it's been quite some time since then. Winter was cold, long, left me feeling a little stern crazy. Oh, boy. It's going to be one of those. June, seriously, I mean, you don't have to try so hard. I know you're excited about this whole guest hosting thing. And, you know, Jason Sieber set a uh, high bar for his hosting and his dad jokes. But, you know, just just be yourself, man. I am. But come on. Michael Stern's our guest. I'm just really excited. And we also have a lot of news to talk about that's kind of been on a lot of our minds lately. And, and you know, when I told my wife about it, she thought she was dreaming and, and I had to pinch her. Oh dear. This is okay. You know what? Enough with the uh enough with the introduction. Let let's just get to it. I am absolutely delighted once again to welcome our music director of the Kansas City Symphony, Michael Stern. Michael, welcome back. I am thrilled to be with you. So, uh for any of our listeners who haven't been paying attention, the Kansas City Symphony broke some pretty big news last month uh, regarding the appointment of our new music director. And uh, I have to say, I had the privilege of being on the search committee, and this was a whopper of a secret uh, that I've been keeping to myself for several months. And it's great to be able to finally talk about the person who will be our next music director, Matthias Pincher uh, will be starting with us in 2024. But Michael, since we have you here today and we still have a whole season of music left, uh, I'm excited to talk about what's to come uh, with you in the Kansas City Symphony. And most importantly right now, how you felt when you heard this news uh, about Matthias Pincher for the first time. I'm delighted to be back with you. Um, the level of expectation as to how bad the puns have to be for this next little bit has risen, you know, so I'm, I'm geared up. I'm ready. Um, well, first of all, let me, let me talk about the big news about Matthias Pincher being, uh, appointed. I was elated. It was really, I think the best possible outcome from our rather long and extensive and comprehensive search that we could have hoped for. And what I mean by that is I admired the way we were looking, we, we, we set our sights on finding somebody who was going to energize the orchestra, bring real meaning to the work, and expand the possibilities of what we've worked so hard together to try to do for the last almost two decades in a way which is not only creative, but sort of forward-looking. It was not business as usual. We had all kinds of candidates uh, and there were we had a really good pool and we had many qualified people but in Matthias Pincher there is somebody who it's more than saying it's the whole package it's it's beyond that I mean he is obviously a formidable musician he's a composer himself he has long experience as a conductor he is extremely energetic um, obviously his the warmth of his personality, his engaging intellect, and his his way of connecting with people was immediate and electric with the, the orchestra musicians and with the audience. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, the concert that you all delivered with him was phenomenal. And it just 
for me personally, it was a very um, instantaneous reaction. Not that I would not have been happy to continue to support, as I always will do, the growing fortunes of the of the symphony, but being able to put my enthusiasm behind somebody in whom I believe so much and whom I am convinced is going to love the orchestra and love the community as much as I did, and as much as I do, I should say, made me incredibly happy. I mean, it's just the culmination of, of everything that you might, might want, and I am eager to see uh, what comes next. I mean, it's going to be a really fantastic ride with him. Terrific. Well, I, I mean, I'm I'm so energized by him as well, personally, and in all of our opportunities to converse, it's just been, you know, nothing but exactly what you said, warmth and um, excitement and love for the orchestra already. But I'm, I'm interested for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, your journey with us and specifically, you know, when you first came to the orchestra, so we understand a little bit more about what it's like to be a, mu- a new music director. Uh, in the Kansas City Symphony, because that hasn't happened for a really long time. So w- what were what were some of the challenges or the opportunities or the goals for you um, when you first came here? And what do you think uh, Matthias might be thinking about uh, when he when he comes in 2024? Well, I think we are in a very different place in 2024 than we were in 2005 when I became music director designate. Actually, I first conducted the orchestra two years before that. Then I came back in 2004. So my association with the orchestra goes back 21 years, or it will go back 21 years, um, which is a long time to see the arc of evolution in the organization. The challenges were very different, and the expectations were very different. We had to, a little bit, if I may say, reinvent the wheel. And I don't mean that in a critical way. Everybody knew it. I was hired to sort of make huge systemic change. I was lucky. First and foremost, we had already in place some pretty fantastic people on the board. I I, I think the elements in building for the future with the symphony orchestra, especially when you want to do more than just play concerts, but actually serve the entire community, that work is dependent on having... If, if you will, the three branches of government really working well together, the board, the administration, and the artistic direction. And I was incredibly lucky. I mean, Shirley Helsberg was, is still, and was as a board chair for so many years, visionary in her commitment to change the culture of the organization. Frank Byrne, my friend Frank, is one of the most not just disciplined, but creatively disciplined and uh, forward-thinking people you would ever want to work with. And I've never met anybody, hands down, more in love with music. So when you have somebody who's in charge of the administration and so unbelievably competent and skilled and at the same time cares about the art form that much and realizes the impact beyond giving concerts that music can have in people's lives... That's a gift. And I think the team that we had with, and then of course the board's evolution, you know, um, bringing people on like Bill Lyons, who then became the board chair to succeed Shirley. These people are um, extraordinary in their commitment to the arts, their commitment to people and to putting 
the most important priorities first, which are not just one thing or another, but bringing them all together so that they're balanced. And we had, of course, also the great gift of opening the new hall in 2011. So there were a lot of things in place which allowed us to take, frankly, an organization that was slightly moribund and finding its way, if at all, to now being able to say to a Matthias Pincher, here are the keys to a really wonderful machine, so to speak, right? I mean, he, and he knows it, he knows it. And it's a little bit like a kid in a candy store because what makes me incredibly proud is the way this orchestra can turn on a dime and play anything, basically, but also make the case for music and for playing in a way that is just exceptional, not just coming in, doing their job and, and leaving, but making something really meaningful happen. And Matthias knows that. And so with his creativity and his sort of fearless desire to experiment with, with things, with programs, with connecting with the community, I think I, I, I can't wait to see what comes next. But I think that really is, for a music director, that's the challenge. Do you need to build something and, and do remedial work, or do you need to just push the opportunities that are already there in such a great way and make stuff happen? We are now in a place where the, the latter is possible, and that's incredibly exciting. Well, I guess moving on to kind of exploring and celebrating your final season with us here at the Kansas City Symphony, what do you feel that, I guess, maybe explain, it'd be great to hear your explanation of how next season manifested as you were programming it to kind of highlight the things you just talked about, about bringing in the community and the orchestra and the audience and everything being brought together. It seems like you've curated a really fun, interesting program that highlights a lot of those things. Well, I mean, there was a certain amount of um, selfishness, just pleasure at being able to invite people who happen to be such good friends and at the same time such eminent and eloquent musicians that it's a win-win. So I, you know, I, it, it's not just to be nepotistic, but I do love the idea of having people like Yefim Bronfman and Joyce DiDonato and uh, Joshua Bell and Yo-Yo Ma and Kelly O'Connor. And I mean, it, you have people like that, uh, Pamela Frank, Philippe Quint, you have people like that who come, Jeff Kahane, who are going to be thrilling for the audience, but they also are meaningful to me. I mean, over the course of my life, I've had the incredible good fortune to work with a lot of really interesting and marvelous people who have also been really, really close friends. And so to be able to celebrate with them, that makes me happy. They also all have a history with the Kansas City Symphony, and they too remember what the Kansas City Symphony was like before it was the Kansas City Symphony of today. So that also gives me pleasure. Let's, let's face it. Um, we've long had a commitment to contemporary music, especially American music. And we have a lot of new music, also by BIPOC composers, but uh, music that I believe in by Jesse Montgomery, by Quinn Mason, um, Erilyn Wallen, uh, Chen Yi. We have just... We have a lot of co-commissions, premieres, and just new music, which 
I think has always been part of our mission. I think mixing old and new is essential um, in terms of how to make programs and how to bring a musical message um, to to the audience in a way that each side of that equation, the old and the new, both enhance the other. But really, the season is not about me. And that's the overriding arc. The season is about the orchestra. It's about my friends and colleagues in the orchestra, about their virtuosity. I mean, works like the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, the Ludoswowski Concerto for Orchestra, uh, the Strauss Don Quixote, the Ginestera Variationis Concertantes. Those are pieces that highlight individual accomplishment on solo level and at the same time the collective brilliance of the entire band, which is what it's all about. And the more I can put the spotlight back on the stage for the musicians, the happier I am. I am not, look, I'm not a retiring shy wallflower particularly, but I also am not interested in self-aggrandizement. I am extremely confident and comfortable knowing that the connection with music that we all have forged together is greater, A, than us, and certainly greater than the sum of our parts. And that, to me, is worth celebrating. Because in the end, the way orchestras in this country are going to thrive in the 21st century will only happen if we can imagine a different model than you know what happened 30, 50, 70 years ago. Not that there wasn't great playing, but the role of music and the arts and, and culture in our increasingly complicated and at times disturbing world needs to be more firmly defended. It needs to be more celebrated. It needs to be made more important. And we're not going to do that without really being connected to the community and making the culture matter in a way that keeps the arts relevant. And frankly, I've always believed that the arts don't have their proper seat at the table when it comes to figuring out what we need as a society. And I think ignoring that the way, certainly the way governmental programs have done in the last few decades, but even just not highlighting that as a priority is one of the reasons that we are in the state that we're in. I mean, I do believe still it sounds old-fashioned, but I think our only hope is to try to figure out how we can be a civilized society, a civil society and a civilized society. And I cannot imagine a world that is that without music and the arts. So I know you're so excited to celebrate the orchestra in, in this last season, as you said, and you all of the pieces you highlighted certainly... Uh, will give us an opportunity to uh, celebrate with you. But you left out, I believe, a couple of, of very important names on that list of soloists that, that I want to mention. We have, of course, our principal cellist, Mark Gibbs, is going to be uh, performing from the front of the stage, and our principal violist, Mingyu Xu. And uh, this other person we happen to have on with us today, concertmaster Jun Iwasaki, is going to be a soloist uh, with us next season as well. And and as somebody who who is who has also had that opportunity several times over the years, there's something incredibly special about being a soloist 
in front of the home crowd, you know, in front of the audience that knows us well, that have been coming to concerts for decades, that see us in the grocery store and say, hey, flute player, right? And I say, oh, yeah, hey, how's it going? To be able to perform uh, as a soloist uh, in that way, as a way of, you know, of thanking, of loving, you know, these people who who come so um, devotedly to listen to music and share music with us is incredible. So June, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear you uh, solo with the orchestra for the first time next season. What, what are you going to be playing with us? Um, I will be, um, first of all, I'm extremely excited to debut as a soloist with Kansas city symphony. It's something that is, is always a pleasure of, of, of mine to be able to step out in front, take a slightly different role uh, with, my home orchestra in front of the home audience. Um, but I will be performing Mozart's uh, very, very fun fifth violin concerto in A major. And um, I think it's a fun way to not only showcase what I can do out of the chair, but also I think it's a, it's a great way to showcase the orchestra. Mozart's a very, um, it's almost a, it's a good test for, for any symphony to, to be able to, shape and explore the operatic emotions that Mozart puts in all of his music. And, and I look forward to sharing uh, my thoughts and working with all the uh, principals in, in the orchestra to convey a very, very fun performance uh, that'll be next January. So very, very, very much uh, looking forward to it. Terrific. I'm looking forward to that too. And uh, I think it was the last time uh, I soloed with the orchestra. I played Mozart as well. And, you know, for me, um, especially, probably somewhat for you too, the, the Mozart you know, flute concerto in G major is most often performed as an audition excerpt. <laughs> and, and there's something about actually playing it for real. Uh, there, there's, there are too many audition memories and baggage associated with it. And it's, it's hard to uh, it's hard to put all that aside and perform it as a piece of music as the piece of music it's meant to be. So I don't know if you feel some of that too, but that was a, a fun process for me to go through. There is a little bit of that, yeah. Mozart concerto is is oftentimes asked in a violin audition, and being on several committees of auditions, I think I have. 101 different renditions of how to play that exposition. So when I get, when I get start getting prepped for, for the concert next January, it's, I'm going to have to kind of zone into my own headspace and, and do what I want and, and try to keep it um, how, how I would want to convey the, the piece, <laughs> um, but not to play it like an audition too. I mean, there, there is something to be said about just performing and having fun and having every night be slightly different and not worrying about, you know, what a committee would think. This is about us. This is about how I interact with with my home orchestra and how the audience reacts is the only thing that's important to me. So, so speaking of uh, reacting to the home audience and interacting with the home audience, I, I do want to come back to the the season uh, more broadly because Michael, you several times now I've had the opportunity to hear you talk in depth about how you conceived and constructed this season, and one of the really interesting elements of of it is that there are some touch points i think through the season that kind of in a way resonate you know with your own longer arc with the symphony and probably none of those is more um clear or more resonant than than the story you told about the 
the Mendelssohn uh, Midsummer Night's Dream Overture that we're going to play at the end of the season next year. But talk talk about a few of those touch points and why why they were meaningful and important to you because I think I think it says so much about how you are reflecting on on your time here with the symphony. So I I confess I like lilt. I like uh, cadence, and I like sometimes I like sort of poetic symmetry in all things. I, I think I speak that way. I certainly approach music with that always in the back of my mind. And I feel also like um, if you construct that clearly, it's a little bit like writing an essay. If you know what you're going to say at the end, as you start the beginning, everything sort of has coherence. A season should have that as well. You know, I love the story of Mendelssohn starting to write the violin concerto and writing to his sister that he's got this, this, tune in his head and he can already hear the ending in the beginning you know mozart who was famous for writing things down without ever putting a correction in had everything sort of firmly in his thinking before he ever put his quill to the parchment so you you have this idea of to use your word the arc uh which brings logic and coherence so you know the first two concerts were opening with music by two African-American composers. We uh, have two concertos for orchestra, which are iconic as middle 20th century masterpieces. And we have great soloists that highlight the virtuosity of the orchestra, right? So in the Brahms concerto with Yefim Bronfman, you know, it's basically a symphony, but there's this huge... Um, cello solo, which among other instruments is highlighted individually. And then in the second concert, of course, the Strauss piece, which um, I was not ignoring Mark and Mingyu, but they will be featured along with everybody else in the orchestra. I mean, if you wanted to give a bow at the end of that piece to everybody who had a solo, we'd be 30 minutes having everybody stand up. Um, So there's that. There is the idea of doing Mahler's second symphony with these two great soloists coming, uh, Kelly O'Connor and Joel Harvey, who are magnificent, of course. But the idea of doing Mahler in Kansas City was new. When I came, I said, this is something which the orchestra needs to play. The orchestra had not really risen to the challenge well enough to do it before. And now it is very customary that we have, um, you know, a symphony or some work by Mahler or Bruckner on every season, because as an important part of the repertoire, that's really important and also great for the audience. And if you're going to pull out all the stops in the last year of one's tenure, Mahler II is a pretty great way to do it. And of course, one of my uh, great highlights of the season, uh, welcoming back our old friend, uh, Joyce DiDonato, who's not only one of the great supreme artists of our time, a close friend, but she brings music to another level, anything she sings. And look at the program we put together from Charles Ives to Richard Strauss to Mahler uh, and finishing with Johann Strauss. But the idea of constructing a program where it's all about searching for higher meaning and coming home and finding one's place in the world, you're going to find that connection throughout that program. And I like putting programs together like that. I know that sometimes uh, you can overthink things, but I also think having a really clear line with all of this different music. And again, American music, older music, newer music, it's all 
part of one idea. And central on that program is my great friend Joel Thompson's piece. I think Joel Thompson is one of the most compelling <clears throat> voices to emerge in, in recent years in American music. I think he's going to have a huge impact. We are in the middle of a recording project because we recorded one piece of his last year. Uh, I hope that all the music that we play of his in this coming season will also be part of that recording. And to include with the Ives and Mahler and Strauss, his music on that program clearly makes the case for how music can be relevant and for how the message of music and how the message of that program can be relevant through voices across uh, centuries. That to me is very, is very moving. Pamela Frank, I mean, I, I can't remember a time as a teenager when Pam and I didn't know each other. She also is one of the most interesting, important, and eloquent musicians that we have in America, and that she's coming, uh, she's coming back to Kansas City, but this time in her official subscription debut, because when she did come, it was a special concert that she did, uh, a one night only, although it was a pretty special night. It was a Beethoven concert with Emmanuel Act and Yo-Yo Ma. So that is, is incredibly important to me, and having her come and play the Beethoven concerto is very moving. And of course, my old friend Yo-Yo, who uh, certainly needs no introduction, but I could not have imagined a final season without including him. First of all, he and I know each other forever, and he's been to Kansas City a bunch of times and has always loved being with the orchestra. And I just think it, it deepens the idea that what the Kansas City Symphony now represents out in the world to attract the interest of all of these great people, that also makes me very happy and is one of the highlights for me of this season. The very last program of the year is especially moving to me because very often, like in the penultimate program for Mahler, we're going to have a lot of extra musicians because it requires a very big orchestra. And I have already told our personal manager, Justin White, that the more he can go back to our old family rosters, if you will, people who have been part of the Kansas City Symphony family for the last 20 years, if they can come back and add their voices to that concert, that's going to be very meaningful to me. But the last concert is just us. The last concert is family only, no extras. And you mentioned the Mendelssohn. The Mendelssohn was one of the very first things I ever rehearsed, let alone performed as a guest conductor with the Kansas City Symphony. And then again, cadence, arc, lilt. I love the idea of finishing as we began and hearing the difference. The overture to A Midsummer Night's Dream is one of the miracles of 19th century music. It requires virtuosity, elegance, transparency, power, wit, and I can't imagine a more wonderful orchestra to work on that piece again and to bring it to life than our Kansas City Symphony. The Barber First Symphony is a piece that, among all the many recordings that we made, I remember especially as being a marvelous experience. I think it's an American masterpiece. I wanted to do American music on the program. Barbara has always been close to me, and that's another reflection of me and of the orchestra. And then the Sibelius Second Symphony is, for me, a deeply spiritual piece. I remember studying it as a teenager, 
I've performed it many times, including with the Kansas City Symphony, and I come back to it as a singular moment of uplift, of optimism, of strength without arrogance, and of possibility. I mean, you get to the end of that piece, and you feel like that affirmation of life in D major has made everything that you have done in that performance and in music up to that point worthwhile. And that was the idea that I wanted to close with, that all of this work that we all did together and has led to this moment where we can look forward to the future and say it was worth it. Beautiful. So you've talked about a lot of the soloists and programs that we have next season, but we do have one more program this season uh, that you're going to be conducting with us. Uh, and it's coming up next week. And it has pieces by Carlos Simon, Beethoven, Stravinsky, and the very, very wonderful pianist Manny Axe, which we always look forward to playing with. So please tell us a little bit about how that program came together, um, highlighting kind of the similarities of maybe the the Carlos Simon and the Stravinsky and how, how you thought about showcasing those those pieces. Yeah, I, I love this program. And for me, it's actually the close of the season, even though you all have another subscription week. After that, I had my schedule did not allow me for the first time in a long time to be with you at the very, very end of the season. So this will be my wrap up for 2023. And yeah, what a what a great blowout program this is. Uh, Carlos Simon, uh, I love his music. I love him. And, you know, I'm committed to American music in a really deep way. And happily, especially given the long overdue and welcome spotlight that some new voices, especially uh, BIPOC composers of, of color, have given us, it's, it's a privilege to find uh, a composer that in which a composer in whose music you believe so much, but also is so much fun to play. This piece particularly called Amen is a lot of fun because he wrote it, at least part of the inspiration was as an homage to his mother who improbably played the trombone. And he was also celebrating his background, which has a lot from his family and his grandparents and so forth. There's a lot of, history from his experiences with in, in in the church so you have this piece where you f you feel a little bit like the trombones are part of this great service right in church and of course he's really writing about his mom uh which is lovely and the trombone section goes nuts in this piece and uh it was really when I did the piece, I couldn't stop smiling, and it was it's really fun. But it also is a really creative use of the orchestra. And you cannot think of one work which defines that, like completely revolutionizing the way a symphony orchestra and all of the possible colors of that could be exploited in a modern way more than Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. So it was a natural combination to put those two pieces together. Here you have a contemporary African-American composer and one of the great geniuses of the early 20th and into the almost late 20th century, but he dominated music throughout, you know, from 19, 
uh, 10, basically, when his first Firebird version came out until his death in 1970. And the Rite of Spring changed music forever. It is still one of the great virtuosic showpieces of all time. And it makes the case that music should reflect the world in which we live. So that was also very much on my mind. Carla Simon was reflecting his reality, turning it into a an artistic and musical message which we can absolutely understand and you know redefine how we feel in that moment through his music. And the Ride of Spring did exactly that at a moment when the world was coming apart. So you have great beauty and mystery and drama in this kind of brutal story, but you also have a kind of deconstructed moment of terror and violence and savagery, which was really a harbinger of things to come, uh, notably two world wars and all of the horrors that accompanied the history of, of the 20th century. So I think putting those two pieces together allows us to hear both the new music and the old music differently. And then, of course, Emmanuel Axe is truly one of my closest friends, one of the most eloquent and poetic interpreters of Beethoven. And having him come and do a Beethoven concerto is a privilege. And it's going to be a very, very exciting and happy weekend. I love that. There's there's something for me in this program, too, about contrasting spiritual experiences, right? There's the the nostalgic, you know, jubilant, um, you know, evocation of this, you know, Pentecostal church. And then there's, and then there's uh, the somewhat less exuberant uh, pagan ritual sacrifice of the Rite of Spring. And of course, Beethoven is, is spiritual in and of itself. So I, I'm really looking forward to that program. And uh, I'm looking forward to all of next season, of course. And uh, I think this is a great way for us to get into today's top five. It's the 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 top so we've been talking all about uh, next season, and I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for today's top five to talk about our top five favorite pieces we are excited about on Michael's final season, the 23-24 season with the Kansas City Symphony. So, uh, Michael, since you, uh, you've you already named a lot of the pieces, and of course you program this yourself, but are there are there any five pieces you feel most excited about, at least in this one moment in time absolutely because I'm, I'm not only seeing them as the pieces that are important to me but also what i think the performances are going to feel like there is obviously the very last piece we're going to play together in that year which is sibelius second symphony strauss don quichotte um Bartok concerto for orchestra i'm going to leave something out right because it's going to be you can't list you can't have a, a season that replete and not have not miss something um, there are more than five pieces. Yes, so there are. You uh, have to leave something out. <laughs> J- Joel Thompson's The Places We Leave uh, with Joyce DiDonato. There's a little ditty called The Second Suite 
of Daphnis and Chloe by Maurice Ravel, which I think Mike has a flute solo. I'm not sure. I'll have to look. You have to look. Just check it out. I could be wrong. And um, one more, let me think. Oh, the second symphony of Mahler, of course, is going to be a highlight for me. Excellent. Well, those are five terrific choices, and uh, I suspect at least a few of those will come up uh, in our list too. June, what uh, what are the highlights for you? Uh, looking at next season, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to have to uh, overlap uh, one piece with Michael, and that is Mahler's Second Symphony. I think it's just such an epic work, and it's always an emotional ride, actually, to to play that piece, especially at the climax. Uh, at the end of the piece and and to have two of the best soloists that we can invite to share the stage with us is just all that more exciting um so we have Mahler and I hate to be selfish but I'm going to and say that I'm really looking forward to playing the Mozart violin concerto um as soloist um so that's two and you know one one piece on on a, a program that we haven't really talked about yet that I'm really looking forward to exploring is the one that Xavier Foley is writing or has written um, his own bass concerto. I've seen him work and play, worked with him yet, so I really look forward to um, getting to play one of his works with his jazz background and his amazing double bass skills. Um, so that that seems to be a really fun piece that I, I look forward to doing um and then i think to round out my top five i would say brahm's second piano concerto with with Joachim Bronfman, one of my all-time favorite piano concertos to listen to and perform as as a violinist and let's see oh I think any of the songs that we're doing with Joy DiDonato, that's another um, artist that I have not had the pleasure of working with yet. And so when I joined this orchestra to learn that she is such a close friend to the symphony and the city, um, it just kind of, it was one of those bucket list items to, to, to be happy to see on next season, to be able to, to look forward to be playing uh, with her on stage. So there's my top five. I, I love all of those two. Joyce uh, is a hero of mine. And of course, she's sung with us many times, grew up here. I've run into teachers of hers uh, at concerts. Uh, I mean, she's just so, uh, so rooted in this community. And it'll be absolutely wonderful to play with her again, uh, as always. So, so my five, uh, similarly, are a mix of old and new uh, friends of ours. So, of course, the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, uh, amazing piece for the orchestra, amazing flute part. I have played it throughout my life, and I have uh, so many memorable performances of that piece. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing it again. Uh, Joel Thompson's The Places We Leave, uh, I am also just incredibly compelled by his music. He was a guest here on the podcast a while back, and just a amazing character uh, to speak with, incredibly uh, thoughtful musician. And so I, I only want to learn more and more of his music. Uh, Mendelssohn, Midsummer Night's Dream, for all the reasons that uh, Michael talked about, I wasn't here for the first Mendelssohn uh, with him, but I will be here for the last one. And, and that's incredible uh, for me personally. Uh, and I think for the orchestra, the Ravel Daphnis, uh, I checked uh, in the interim since five minutes ago, and it turns out there is quite a bit of flute music uh, in that 
in that fantastic piece. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. And then, and then the final thing uh, I'm looking forward to so much because Angel Lamb is a composer uh, with whom I am unfamiliar. And as I've been doing uh, this now, uh, playing an orchestra here in Kansas City for almost 16 years and playing an orchestra, you know, throughout my life, the opportunity to do something truly new becomes more and more special and important to me. So I do not know Angel Lamb's music, and I do not even know what the piece is that she uh, is going to write for us because it is presently listed as TBD. It's going to be a brand new work. And uh, whatever it is, it is one of the top five things I am most excited about playing. Well, Michael, thank you again for this fantastic conversation. We're really looking forward to next season. And thank you, of course, to today's guest host, Jun Iwasaki, our fantastic concert master. Really looking forward to your Mozart next season. In music, as in life, there is a rhythm to all things. And as the hot and hazy skies of summer start to set in here in Kansas City, we have reached the close of our seventh season of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. It's hard to believe we've been doing this podcast now for over three years and that we've recorded 78 episodes, including this one. From me, from Stephanie, and our silent but ever-watchful and wise producer, Tim Dixon, thank you to all of our listeners, and thank you to everyone for enjoying live music and supporting your Kansas City Symphony. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. There is still more music to come this month. Emmanuel Axe, Carlos Simon's Amen, and Stravinsky's Rite of Spring are a can't-miss combination. Performances are June 16th through 18th. Then we finish our season June 23rd through 25th with guest conductor Valentina Pileggi leading us in Tchaikovsky's festive Fourth Symphony, and pianist Kenny Broberg will perform Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. All by himself, all by himself. Okay, not really all by himself. It's a joke. If you get it, you get it. Apologies for my poor singing. As always, you can go to kcsymphony.org to purchase tickets for all remaining concerts this season, and even more importantly, concerts for Michael Stern's final season with the Kansas City Symphony. Have a fantastic summer, and we'll see you in the fall back here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.